If you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, God willing, we'll finish this chapter tonight. I think, you know, some of these Proverbs, you could spend a whole sermon just looking at one little proverb. I think our goal, though, is going to be more of a bird's eye view as we progress through this book. Um, The Lord's continuing to give us wisdom, and he's continuing to give us understanding, and, and he wants to pour out into our lives his mind. You know, he wants to give us his mind. And through his spirit, we have the mind of Christ, but yet we have to turn to the word of God as the spirit of God reveals the truth to us and begins to change us from the inside out. Uh, as we get to verses 13 through 18, we're going to see what we would refer to in the New Testament as a beatitude. Remember how Jesus said, blessed are the at the, the, the mount. And so here we have a beatitude right in the midst of Proverbs in verses 13 through 18. Why don't we go ahead and read those? Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of of her, and happy are all who retain her. Notice at the beginning of verse 13, he tells us, happy is the man who finds wisdom. As you read that verse, it might seem like you just, you stumble across wisdom. You're walking in the midst of a forest, and that branch of wisdom is right there, and you stumble across it. But that's not at all what it means here. When it says that the man finds wisdom, it implies there's an aggressive search for it. And so we are searching for wisdom, and guess what? When we seek after wisdom, God's promising us that we find it. Remember when Jesus said, if we ask, if we seek, and we knock... That, that, that will be answered, the door will be open to us. And, and so happy is the man, blessed is the man when he finds wisdom and he gains understanding. You know, and we obtain this wisdom as we go to the word of God and we believe what the Lord tells us. We believe it to be true. You know, you could hear the word of God day after day after day after day, but if, if we don't have the faith to believe the word of God, then it's not going to impact our life. And so as we hear the word of God, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Lord willing that we gain wisdom, we gain understanding. And isn't it a joy when you get into the word and you begin to understand it and it becomes precious to you? Do you remember as a new believer when you first opened up the scriptures and it was just like an unending well of wealth, of treasure, where you, maybe you could not get enough of it. You were just like that little baby crying for more and more and more milk. You know, I I pray, if you've never experienced that before, I pray that by God's grace you will, that the Spirit of God will give you that desire, because it's supernatural. You know, that's not a natural desire of man, is to know the wisdom of God. Many people are seeking after wisdom, but they're seeking it apart from the Lord, we've seen in this book. You know, unless we have that fear of God, that reverence for God, wisdom is going to bypass us, or godly wisdom. Uh, But this is something that God wants to do. He wants to reveal himself to us. He's not trying to hide so that we never find him. You know, maybe you've played hide and seek before with little children. And it's so fun. You know, I play with my three-year-old. Well, he's going to be three. 
And you know, you, you hide in, in places where you know he can find you, but he still has to just get a little bit of effort. And what a joy it is when he finds you and the little face just lights up. You know, as a daddy, it just brings joy to your heart when your son finds you. And, and I believe that's the Lord's heart. As we seek him, as we look for him, he's there to be found. He wants to be found because all wisdom will ultimately lead us to him. And so that's why we are so happy when we find wisdom. Why? Because we will ultimately find the Lord. Because he's the source of wisdom. See, we're not seeking after wisdom just so we're smart. I know we're the smartest congregation in, in the Northeast, right? <laughs> it's not just wisdom for wisdom's sake. It's not just gaining understanding. Rather, it's godly wisdom. It's wisdom that is promoting a reverence for God and a relationship with the Lord. And notice in verse 14, he's going to let us know the proceeds of this wisdom. Notice, and he's referring to wisdom as a her here. He's personifying wisdom. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies. Notice the language that he's using here. He's using the choice things of this world that are of value. Gold, silver, rubies, precious stones. And he's showing us that Despite these things being so precious when we find them, they're nothing compared to the wisdom that comes from God. And remember, wisdom is knowledge applied. In other words, it leads to action. How you think about the world will determine what you do. If you have godly wisdom, it will change the way you act, right? It's, it's understanding applied. It's being skillful with the knowledge that God gives us. And so wisdom leads to action. And, and I, I like this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm not quoting him as someone who I agree with in his philosophy or, or, or whatnot. But I think this quote sums up it very well. He said this. He said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. And sow a character and reap a destiny. But notice it all starts with a thought. It all starts with information coming into our mind. And whether that information is good or bad will determine our action, which will determine habits, which will determine character, which will determine destiny. That our thoughts have immense impact, not just on our present, but on our future, on our eternity. You know, what we think about God is so important. Who is he? Is he the God of the Bible or is he a figment of our own imagination? Is he a God of our own understanding that we've created out of our own intellect? Or is he the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am that we just sang about? And so if we sow a thought that's full of wisdom, godly wisdom, that will create godly habits. That will create godly character. And that will create a godly, ultimately, eternity as we play it out. And so if we find wisdom, here's the point, we will find great rewards, better than gold, better than silver, better than rubies. In fact, notice he says not only those things, but she's more precious than all the things that you may desire, right? All the things you may desire. And, and Solomon had an inside track on this because he could have anything his heart did desire. Remember, this man was wealthy beyond measure. I mean, we're wealthy as Americans, 
But this man, anything he wanted, he just, he put money there and he had it, right? He had his own rock band, if you will. He had his own clothing line. He had uh, houses galore. You know, if we said it today, he had the bling bling. He had the ladies. You know, everything, if you said a man could want in his heart, Solomon pursued it. And what was the outcome? The book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Everything is vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. Life under the sun. Life devoid of God. If you seek after gold, silver, jewels, and this is the pursuit of your heart and the pursuit of your life, at the end, you're not going to have anything to show for life. But wisdom, godly wisdom, is eternal. And it produces eternal fruit in our life. What a difference between something that's so temporal and something that's so eternal. It's something that money simply cannot buy. And you know, there, there are things that money can't buy. Can money buy a good name? I mean, you could spend your entire life building your name and in 30 seconds destroy it all and never get it back. Isn't that humbling? To, to work on that name your whole life, to invest in it, and by one bad action, it's gone. Or character. Can you purchase character? One of my favorite quotes, John Wooden was a, a, a basketball coach for UCLA back in the day when they won many national championships. And he, he really saw it, one of his roles is to try to instill in the young men that he coached values. And he tried to uh, teach these men how to be men. Many of them came from rough backgrounds. And one of his quotes has always stuck with me. He said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Because your reputation is merely who people think you are. Your character is who you really are. And, and what wisdom is that? You know, we, we sometimes focus so much on our reputation, our rep. What will people think of me? But the Lord's more concerned with our character. Forget about who do, what do people think of me. What does God think of me? Who do I seek to please in my life? Do I seek to please others or do I seek to please him? Isn't that wisdom? To please the Lord, to put him first in our life? And so character through wisdom allows us to keep the blessings of God. Think about it. If you apply wisdom to your life, you will develop character. And that character will enable you to keep things when God blesses you. You know, so often I see so many people, they, they, they get all the blessings or we pray for blessings. But do you know, sometimes when God says no to our prayers, it's because he loves us. And if he gave us everything that we wanted before we had the character developed, could we keep those blessings? And sometimes God's love for us is when he says no, because we, he knows we're not ready for some, some things, right? If he gave us everything we wanted, where would we be? Some of us would be dead right now if he gave us everything that we wanted. And so to actually get everything that I want without the character becomes a curse. It becomes misery. It's like winning the lottery without the character to know how to handle money. And pretty soon now you're bankrupt and all your relationships are broken because we didn't know how to attain or keep the blessings of God. So wisdom, it's more precious than gold because guess what? As you obtain wisdom, you'll be able to handle even the temporal things. It's not saying that gold is bad. It's not saying that rubies are bad. No, these are precious things in this world that we use, hopefully, for the glory of God. But without wisdom, those things become empty and meaningless. 
We lose them. They, they slip through our hands and we can't keep the blessings of the Lord. And such was Solomon, right? Solomon, so wealthy, so smart, so intelligent, writing all this wisdom down. And at the end of his life, what did he have to show for it? He ends up worshiping all the different gods of his wives. He forsook the Lord. And we have that book of Ecclesiastes to see when we depart from wisdom, when we, we, we fail to heed God's counsel, it always leads us into misery and pain, doesn't it? You know, did you ever go your own way? Did you ever know God's word said this and you decided to go this way instead? Has God's, has God's word ever proven to be false in your life? Never in my life. Never. Never once. Every time he's told me to do something and I didn't, I've always regretted it. And I've always said, wow, Lord, I wish I would have listened to you. I would have saved myself days, months, years. And so we get to verse 16 now. Wisdom is more precious than rubies, more than anything we could ask for or desire. We can't even compare it. Notice it also says length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. Think about that with that word peace. You know, I, I think a lot of people in our world right now are looking for peace. They're looking for peace externally you know, you turn on the news and you see a world that's just in chaos. But I think it goes beyond just the external world. We understand our world's on fire and that things are literally blowing up. But I see a world of people who are looking for inner peace as well. And I believe at the heart of that, a lot of the heart of addictions as we see in America today, I believe people looking for this peace. People turning to heroin that seems to give this artificial peace for a moment. When in fact, it doesn't really bring peace. It's deceptive, right? It brings destruction. It brings chaos. It brings uh, doing things that people would never do in their right mind. Money can't buy certain things. It can't buy peace. How many rich people are currently addicted searching for peace? Or going to counseling on a regular basis? You know, we look at the rich and the wealthy and we think, boy, if I just had that. If I just had a bigger bank account. If I just had a little bit more, then I would be happy, then I would be at peace. You know, anything that you put in that blank, if I just had blank, then I'd be happy. That becomes an idol in our life. If I just had blank, anything other than the Lord, then I'll be happy. That it really comes down to that simple relationship with the Lord. And money can't buy this peace, this shalom that is so important in Jewish mind. You know, when you see people in, 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 in that culture, the shalom is it's precious. It's something that we desire within and to attain in our life. Money also, as the Beatles said, can't buy love, right? See, they did have their theology right on something. But it can't buy love. And, and those women who, you know, jewelry's precious for a lot of ladies. That, that beautiful ring, that beautiful necklace, right? But as precious as those jewels are, it's nothing compared to the heart that gave those jewels, right? I mean, isn't it the heart behind that stuff is what really matters and what me makes that meaningful? If the heart ceases, then the jewelry ultimately will mean nothing. And so certain things money cannot buy, and yet wisdom is the solution, the thing that we're really looking for here. Honor, peace, pleasantness. Notice these are internal things that lead to external behaviors. 
Verse 18, notice she's also a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Those of you who've read through the the book of Genesis, that word tree of life probably rings a bell. That this is no doubt referring back to that event in the Garden of Eden. And uh, we see here the tree of life, it's symbolic of healing or immortality. And Adam sought, apart from God, wisdom. Eve sought, apart from God, wisdom, and it ended up in death. And we know that the Lord, ultimately, he banished them from the garden. He would not allow them to partake of the tree of life so that they would not remain in that state forever by his mercy. And so we see the effects of looking for wisdom apart from the Lord. But when we seek wisdom his way, it becomes a tree of life. It brings healing. It brings ultimately uh, immortal things into our life, things that are eternal, eternal fruits that God wants to work in and through our lives. And we see that there's no true happiness apart from holiness as we look at this text. You know, there's no true peace apart from the wisdom of the Lord through his word. We try to find it elsewhere, but we never find it. It's always grasping for something that we're never finding. And in verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down the dew. The idea here is simple. If God in his creation used wisdom in the midst of it all to create the world that we inhabit, don't we need the Lord's wisdom in the little world that we inhabit? I mean, he's the author of it. He's the perfecter. of. He's the the one through whom wisdom comes. And he used wisdom as a tool to create everything that we see. And we see this creation as Christians. You know, isn't it amazing to look at creation? I never appreciated creation before I was a Christian. I, I hate to say this being in Cumberland, but I just I never even appreciated the outdoors at all. You know, I'm more of a city guy by nature. But as I became a believer and I would go to these retreats in the Poconos and I would look out at the stars and I would see the sky and I would see God's creation. It was just like something something was new inside of me because it wasn't the creation itself. It was who the creation pointed me to. And you see the glory of creation, both big and small. And I think one of the dangers in our society, we live in such a scientific society, and A.W. Tozer spoke a lot about this, you know, we, we dissect creation. We look at it and we can explain it. We look at it under a microscope or in a telescope and we can explain how everything works and in our minds we want to describe it, we want to write a manual about it, but we miss the glory behind it that it points us to so often. You know, creation should cause us to worship the Lord. So often in my life, I find, you know, I get distracted. I get, I get tunnel vision. And especially living in New York City, if you ever go into New York City, watch people who live there, how they walk. They're always looking down. And they're walking really fast. And just to, just to give you a heads up of why that is, in New York, when you're, when you're dependent on mass transportation, this is one reason, one minute can mean... 30 minutes. And so if you miss your train one minute, you might get home 30 minutes later. And so people there are always in a rush, always in a hurry, and everyone's always looking down. 
And one of the things the Lord has challenged me with, just real practical, when I'm faced with life and maybe you, you feel just weighed down, you feel discouraged, you feel overwhelmed by things that are happening, just look up. Look at the sky. See the horizon. See the glory of God as he's, it's displayed in his creation. It does something for you. It opens up your window. It helps you to see things in the proper perspective. It's like flying on an airplane and you're in this little tiny tin can and you see all of creation and it reminds you how small you are but how amazingly huge God is. I almost used a President Trump word there. Bigger, right? It's huge. But it reminds you of God's glory. And even in the midst, of it, 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 there's this humbling effect and there's this glorious effect at the same time. It humbles us, but it points us to him. And by wisdom, he founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. He, he, it, it, the, the word in the Hebrew here, it's almost like a man who goes and establishes a city. And, and, and the Lord, through understanding, he established everything that we see, the heavens that declare his glory. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down the dew. And, and this was something that was very, very important for Jewish people. When you look at their land, it's right next to desert on one side and, and the Mediterranean Sea on the other. And so it's not like us where we just get the rain and we're good. There, they're very dependent on the, upon the dew coming from the water to keep moisture. Because if you don't have that dew, everything dries up. And so in this perspective, it's the Lord who allows the clouds to drop the, down the dew. And it speaks of the present tense. This is what he's presently doing. Even though creation was something that happened in the past, he's still active in creation. You still see his handiwork. Remember, Jesus himself said that the Father is always working. You realize as we look at creation, if one thing was just off point, just a little bit, if the sun was a little bit closer, we'd fry to death. If it was a little bit further, we'd freeze to death. If the elements were just a little bit off, we would suffocate or we'd burn up. You know, creation is so amazing and God sustains it by his power, by, by the word of his power, right? And it should cause us to see the wisdom of God and how much we need it in a world that seems to be crumbling. My son, verse 21, let them not depart from your eyes. No doubt he's speaking of wisdom, understanding here. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, or discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. And then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When he says here to let our eyes, let it always be before us or not depart from our eyes, it means to always allow wisdom to be before you. It impacts every decision that you make, big or small. You know, you realize it's not just the big decisions that matter anymore. It's the little decisions because they become big decisions. It's like that snowball effect. And you understand your need for wisdom from the Lord for every decision that you make. You know, looking back, sometimes you, you make decisions and we just make them so flippantly. And we think it's not really a big deal. And then life happens and you realize the, the, the gravity of some of those things that we do just every day, not even thinking about it. Those of us with children, you know, every decision we make as parents, somehow they are sponges. They are sucking it in. They're watching us. Our every move, the words that come out of our mouth, they're recorders, aren't they? 
and they will report on us the things that we're speaking. And so we need to let these things never to depart from our eyes. They're always before us. They impact every decision that we make. And notice the heart of our Father here. Notice that ultimately He wants good for us, right? He wants to bless us. He wants benefit for us. He wants to give us sound wisdom. He wants there to be life for our soul. He wants us to experience grace. He wants us to walk safely in our way and our foot not to stumble. He wants good things for us. And even when he says no, it's because he says yes to something better. Even when he says no, it's because he knows there's something better for you. And it's his desire. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do you hold the truth or does the truth hold you? Do you hold wisdom or does wisdom hold you? Or this is another way I like to think of it. Do you read the word or do you let the word read you? When we open up the scriptures, are we just reading it for more head knowledge or are we allowing it to dissect our minds, our hearts, our lives, our decisions? Are we asking the Lord, Lord, how does this decision reflect what's written in your word? Does this honor you, Lord? Do you speak about what I'm going through anywhere in your word, Lord? And as we allow him to scrutinize us, you know, it's not comfortable, right? It's like a mirror. It shows us our reality. We get distracted or we get, you know, we we think that we're over here when in reality his word shows us we're way over there. We're behind what we thought we were. And so does the, do you hold the truth or does the truth hold you? It's a matter of the heart and he's getting after this here. He wants it to be something that's always before us. And there's benefits to this. Notice verse 24. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. You know what it's like to lay down with fear, what it's like to go to sleep at night full of anxiety, full of regrets. See, when, when there's sin in our life, there's no sweet sleep, is there? When there's sin in our life, if anything, we turn to things to try to find that sweet sleep. You know, it seems like half of America is on some type of sleeping pill or, 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 you know, we have addiction just rampant. And, And to go to sleep when the mind is just churning and churning, full of fear, worry, regret, remorse, shame, guilt, all that stuff. And the, and the Lord showing us through his word that there's a better way, that we can go to sleep with peace. You know, I remember times of sin in my own life. When you're in sin, you're never at peace, are you? You're always, sometimes you're even wondering if you're caught in lies, like who did I tell what to, to who? <laughs> And you're wrestling in your mind of, of, of the situations. You're trying to work things out for the outcome that you want. There's just no peace there. Again, peace is not something that we can get on our own. But notice in verse 26, who is with us that we can have this kind of peace? Who is with us that we can go to sleep at night, lay our head on the pillow as we've sought him and realize, guess what? The Lord is my confidence that I have him. I can go to sleep at night and not be afraid of sudden terror. Why? Because he's with me. 
He's my, he's my confidence. In fact, even in countries where there is sudden terror, you know, in certain places in the world, Christians go to sleep at night not knowing if they're going to wake up the next day, not just because of natural causes, but you don't know if people are going to burn your hut down because you believe in Jesus. You don't know if someone's going to try to take your life. And it's at night that we're most vulnerable, isn't it? We go to sleep. We're defenseless. And the point is not that the Lord's always going to keep Christians from, from harm. No, we see that that happens, unfortunately. There are plenty of martyrs today for the cause of the gospel. In fact, I was just reading uh, a new rendition of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And, and there was a lady in the jungles, uh, I can't remember what country, and just because she was sharing Christ with the villagers, people came to her door one morning, op- asked her if she was so-and-so, she said, no, my name's this, and they shot her right in the face, right there, in her hut, just because she was sharing Christ in the village, and she was a missionary. So it's not that, that the Lord's going to keep us from all bad happening, but rather it's about our hearts. That in the midst sometimes of chaos, our hearts can be at peace, settled upon the Lord. Because this peace does not depend on our outward circumstances, right? So in the New Testament, it tells us, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let it call the shots. And, And I would encourage you as you're seeking the Lord, maybe you're seeking the Lord tonight for something. Allow the peace of the Lord to rule your heart. Allow his peace to call the shots. If you're uneasy about something... You know, you have a decision to make and you're just not sure and your heart's uneasy. Wait on the Lord. If you don't have that peace, don't move. Let him direct your steps. But when you have his peace, oh, you can have sweet, sweet sleep. You can go to bed, your head can hit that pillow. And regardless of what tomorrow brings or the night brings, the Lord is your confidence. You understand who's really in control of things. Verse 27 Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Again, these are random thoughts here. This isn't like all these things tie together neatly like some of the portions of Scripture. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. And the idea here is it seems like this person is owed something. It could be a laborer. Or it just could be a neighbor who we owe something to. And they come to you and and they want something that's due to them. And we say, well, you know what? For whatever reason, I'll give it to you tomorrow. Don't worry about it. But we don't know if tomorrow is going to come for that person or for us. We don't know what tomorrow brings. What if this person needs it tonight? And I've been in, you know, I read this and I feel so bad because I think about my life and so often I put people off. Not for any reason, just because I, I put them off, because I felt like it at the time. And this word convicts not to withhold good from those to whom it is due. And when it's in the power of our hand to do so, when we have the ability to do good to someone and we choose not to do it, that's sin. See, sin is not just doing the wrong thing, it's also withholding the right thing. There's the positive and negative sides of sin. It's when evil persists and we do nothing about it, you know. You see things developing and all of a sudden we stand back and we don't step in and say truth. We don't stand up for the poor or that we don't stand up for the weak and we let injustice flourish. That, that's just as sinful as actually doing the wicked sometimes. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor 
for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Now, interesting that we look at this word neighbor and who is my neighbor? Remember when Jesus was talking to the lawyer and the lawyer proclaimed the two great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And he was convicted. And the question is, who is my neighbor? And remember what Jesus said. Remember the parable Jesus said? It's one of the most famous ones, the, the good Samaritan. And to the Jewish ears, the Samaritan was a no good, wicked dog, <laughs> a half breed at that, not even as good as a dog because it's not even a full breed. And to them, to see that the Samaritan is the hero of the story was not pleasant news. But of course, Jesus' emphasis was whoever comes into your path and has a need is a neighbor. Regardless if that person lives next door or on another side of the world and they're just visiting America, that person in need is your neighbor. So don't devise evil against anyone, right? As Christians, we don't, we don't overcome evil with evil. Rather, we overcome evil with good. And also, when it says here not to strive with a man without cause, you know, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. See, Jesus took the truth of the Old Testament. Not only did he fulfill it, but he actually furthers it. This just tells us not to strive with a man without cause. In other words, if, if you have cause, then you have just reason to strive with that person. Jesus took it a step further and said, just turn the other cheek. If he asks you to walk one mile, go another mile with him. Go the second mile. See, why? Because love goes further. Grace goes further than the law. It's not just about do's and don'ts. It's not just about, well, let me not do evil to my neighbor. Rather, as Christians, we're, we're not just supposed to abstain from evil. We're supposed to do good. We're supposed to pursue peace. We're supposed to seek after ways to reach out to the lost in our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that requires to not just be on, on the defensive, it requires us to be on the active side of things. We need to be pursuing those in our life. The neighbors that God puts in our path we need to be asking the Lord, Lord, what, what do you have for me in this area of my life? How do you want me to reveal the peace of God in the midst of this situation? Because if you have a contentious person in your life, isn't it amazing that you could have peace with that person in your heart? See, there are some people in this world, they want to try to make you crazy. And by giving into that, you're actually giving into them. <laughs> but by having peace in the midst of that, not only are you being a witness, you're actually causing them great distress because they can't control you. And the idea is we want to be controlled by the Spirit of God, not by our emotions, not by our situation or our circumstances. And the only way you're going to do any of this, please understand, is by the Spirit of the Lord. We're not going to be able to fulfill any of this apart from him. I hope you understand that I do. I look at these things and I'm like, this is great wisdom. But apart from the Lord, good luck. I, I, I don't have the resources in and of myself. Last couple of verses, verse 31. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. 
For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. What a powerful word. But his secret counsel is with the upright. Notice when it says, do not envy the oppressor. It means literally, do not ever, ever, ever let your mind even think about envying the oppressor. First of all, when you think of envy, what kind of wreckage has envy caused in the world that we live in? What was the first death recorded in human history? We have a brother killing a brother. Why? Envy. What was the most unjust death in human history? We have a savior who was handed over because of envy. And so he's warning us about the power of envy, of seeing people and wanting something that they have, that they possess. But in this case, it's the oppressor. Now, why is that so important? Why is this challenging for us? Well, no doubt the oppressor seems to be flourishing. The oppressor seems to have it all that the world would say is important. And in, in Psalm 73, I think, you know, if you want to do a little bit of homework, I'm not going to read it to you, but Asaph, it's a psalm of Asaph, and he begins the psalm by really remorsing over the fact that he was doing exactly this. He was envying the oppressor. He was looking out at his world. He was seeing that the wicked seemed to prosper, that, that there's, you know, everything seems to go well for them. They seem to have everything their heart desires, and then you have the righteous who are suffering and just don't have anything. And in his heart, he began to envy those people who seem to be getting ahead in the world. And what's amazing about this psalm is that it's painful for him as he recounts his perspective, as he began to envy the oppressor. It's painful for him. He can't believe he thought that way. And it wasn't until he went into the sanctuary of God that then he understood the way things really are. Because it was going to the sanctuary of God that he understood things from God's perspective. He understood the oppressor's end, which is destruction. He understood it, that the oppressor may seem to do well, the wicked may seem to flourish for a season here on earth, but their time is short. And they better enjoy every passing pleasure for every moment that they have it. Because for the rest of eternity, they're going to be bankrupt. And he understood that on the other side of eternity is God. And even though the, the righteous seem to suffer in this world, oh, there's eternity awaiting for the righteous. And being in the presence of God had a way of changing his perspective on life. And he began to see things from God's perspective. In other words, things are not as they appear to the naked eye. See, worldly wisdom is one thing. And usually worldly wisdom is just by what we can see and what we can reason with our minds. But godly wisdom sometimes is contradictory to worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom says to lay down our life for the sake of our enemy. It doesn't make sense. But that's what Jesus did. And his death accomplished great things, amen? That's godly wisdom. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the sinner. God's ways are not our ways. And just as in Psalm 73, Asaph began to understand the wisdom of God apart from the world, he's warning us here not to envy the oppressor, choose none of his ways. Why? This 
perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. And that word, uh, R.E. Clements, a scholar, traced that word back to hurtful, hostile behavior towards others, meant to inflict harm by deceit, humiliation, and defraudment. In other words, many times this word at its core shows either idolatry or harm to mankind. And the Lord says it's an abomination to him. He detests it. But his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. I don't want to be in that house, no matter how good it looks on the outside. But he blesses the home of the just. Isn't that your prayer for your home? Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that's quoted twice, and once in James and I think the other time in First or Second Peter, right? He, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but the shame shall be the legacy of fools. As we close this evening, I guess the question that I have for us is, do we have the right perspective of the Lord? Because if we have a right perspective of God, that's going to humble us. You know, when, when you see people who encounter the Lord in, this, in the scriptures, Isaiah, when he goes before the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, what can he say? Before, in chapters 1 through 5, he's saying, woe are you, woe are you, woe are you. In chapter 6, he gets into the very presence of God. What's he say? Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. He, he, his perspective was changed. Why? Because he saw God rightly. Job. <laughs> There's a case study for you. An innocent man suffering. Yet got a little bit loose with the lips. And then he beholds the Lord in the whirlwind. And he repents in dust and ashes. John, the beloved disciple who rested on Jesus' breast, who walked with him for three years, saw him, saw him resurrected and ascending on high. And he catches a vision of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, and he falls at his feet as though dead. See, a right perspective of God, the fear of the Lord, will bring this beautiful thing called humility. And notice this humility puts us in a place to receive the grace of God. Our pride keeps us from there. That's how wicked pride is. I believe pride is the sin of all sins. It's what sent Satan down and made him the devil that we know him today. And pride keeps people from turning to the Lord. But if we humble ourselves, we acknowledge our sin before him. And we trust in him as our only hope, as our Lord and our Savior. He offers forgiveness. And I pray, if you've never made that decision that you'll trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. He died in your place on that cross to save you because he loves you and he desires good for you. And this book of Proverbs is showing us proof of God's love for us. He wants to give us good things. He wants to give us wisdom to navigate this crazy world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And uh, God, it's so contradictory to so many things, maybe that we were even taught growing up. Lord, our families had ways of doing things, and, and Lord, some of that was imparted to us. Some things we've come to our own conclusions, Lord, and, and Father, yet we read your word and we see such different perspective. 
And Father, we pray that more and more, Lord, you'll renew our minds and help us to see things through your lens, that we would be transformed, Lord, that, that Lord, not just in our minds, but Lord, our actions, that it would, it would reap beautiful rewards that, that ultimately last until eternity. So God, I pray if anyone is here tonight and does not know you, Lord, has not humbled his or her heart, Father, before you and trusted in Christ as his or her Lord and Savior, I pray that you'll help that person to make that decision, Lord. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.